So if you were here last week, we went through kind of the theological telling of the Christmas story from the Gospel of John. And John, to kind of recap, he presents the story not in terms of, of shepherds and angels and mangers, but he presents the story in terms of light and darkness. And he says that the condition of the world is dark. Like Genesis says, that, that every inclination of their, thought, of their heart was only evil all the time. And so that in this darkness, God sends His Son, the light of the world, to save us. And so He presents the story theologically in terms of light and darkness. And what we said we wanted to do today was not to look at it purely theologically, but look at it historically, to look at the coming of Jesus in its full historical context as best we can. And so that's our goal today. In Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 27, we find Jesus after the resurrection. And he's walking with some disciples on their way to a town called Emmaus. And this is what, he, he, what the scripture says he did while walking with them in Luke 24, 27. It said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus walking along the road, goes back to the writings of Moses. So when we say starting with Moses, we don't mean the man Moses in his story. We mean his writings. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the writings of Moses, the very beginning of the Bible, Jesus explains everything that the Scripture says about himself. So looking at that, we know right away that the story of Christmas doesn't begin in the New Testament with the story of the Gospels. The story of Christmas doesn't begin with that age-old phrase from the King James Bible, and it came to pass. It begins much earlier in the early writings of Scripture, and then we move forward to the baby in a manger. So our goal today is to tell the old, old story, beginning with Moses, beginning in Genesis, to the coming King, and then climaxing in Luke's Gospel that we heard today. If you do a little searching, you'll find the scholars will disagree a little bit, but there's roughly about 300 to 360 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. 360. We've got about 35 minutes. That's roughly 5.8 seconds per prophecy. So I hope you're ready. We're not going to do them all. It's actually 5.83. I worked it out for the math people. We're going to begin in the beginning, though, in Genesis chapter 3. History is a pretty short story up until this point. God has created everything. He's created man and woman and placed them in paradise, in the garden, to tend it and work it on His behalf, reflecting His image. But through rebellion and sin, they turn from Him. And God comes down to pronounce judgment for sin. And in doing so, we find a glimpse of the Christmas story in Genesis 3, 15. As he is describing to the serpent who tempted the woman what his judgment will be. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and and, and you will strike his heel. That's what they call the Proto-Evangelion, it, the beginning of the good news, that even in this judgment for sin, we find a glimpse that the offspring of the woman will come who will crush the serpent. And so from Genesis 3 forward, we have this anticipation of this offspring of woman coming to crush Satan, sin, and death. 
As we fast forward a little bit in the story, we find God continuing to work to combat the sin that is so rampant in the world, and He chooses a man named Abraham. And He chooses Abraham to make him a great nation, and in doing so, to bless the world. And the call of Abraham is in Genesis 12. In verse 2, to Abraham He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So there's the choosing of a nation, the coming of a child already seen, and then he tells us through your lineage, there will come one who will bless the entire world. Not just you being blessed, but everyone in the world will be blessed through you. As the story rolls on, Abraham has sons, Isaac, and a grandson, Jacob. And and the promise is passed down to them. They find themselves coming out of Egypt, having conflict with other countries as they go through their territory. And one of those countries hires a guy named Balaam. And Balaam is a sorcerer. And they hire him and they say, Balaam, what we'd like you to do is come out to look at the Israelite camp and say curses over them, like a spell or some kind of hex that that, that we would be able to beat them in battle. And so they call Balaam, which is a great story about a talking donkey. But we're not going to go into that this morning. And in Genesis, um, excuse me, we skipped one. I want you to go to Genesis 49 before we get to Balaam. Jacob is blessing his sons on his deathbed. And he looks to Judah. And this is what he says to Judah in verse 9. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. And so Jacob, in blessing his son Judah, who would be the father of the tribe of Judah, says there will come one who will rule, that, that the ruling of the nation will be from your lineage until the one whom, who comes who really, really has eternal authority over the scepter. Until the one who comes who will reign forever, who all nations will submit to. And then we go to the story of Balaam. In Numbers 24, verse 17, we find Balaam hired to curse Israel, but unable to because God would not allow it. And this is what he says looking out on the, on the tents of the Israelites. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Now listen to this. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And he will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered and Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will go strong and a ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. He looks out while paid to curse them and instead says, I see in the distance. Not now, but sometime. Not soon, but someday. A king. The scepter, which was a symbol for kingship and for reign and rule and authority, a king will rise out of this people. 
He says, a star, a king. Does that sound familiar? A star, a king. We fast forward to the prophets as they anticipated a coming Savior. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call Him Emmanuel. Again, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, in verse 6, he says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. So there's this coming of a king. There's the coming of a child who will be born of a virgin of the house of David. That this child would be very God, that He would be a child, so He would be human, He would be man, but that He would be God. And that this Son, this child who comes from eternity past, this wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace, will take upon Himself the authority of all the nations, and that He would rule, and that His reign would endure forever and extend across all creation, and that He would reign in justice and righteousness for eternity, and that He would reign in the zeal of the Lord Almighty. This is the prophecy concerning a coming child. This is what they looked forward to. Isaiah then goes on to describe Him coming as a tender root from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was... David's father. And because of the sin of the kings, the line of David had been cut off. And God had promised that from that stump, from that tree that had been laid bare by the axe in God's judgment, that a stump would rise, that a shoot would come out of this dead lineage to produce the greatest king. See, for, for years God had made this promise that, that one of David's descendants would, would reign on the throne for eternity, but every one of them, because of their sin, was disqualified until the one who came, to whom all rule and authority was given. The details of the story become a little clearer with the prophet Micah. In chapter 5, verse 2, Micah looks to this child coming and he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. 
So this coming king, this child to be born of a virgin, of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah, was to be born in the town of Bethlehem. There's even a story of a star rising. No doubt these prophecies were, were somehow made known to the Magi who made their way. And so they come seeking a star, looking for a king in Bethlehem. And then all of this anticipation, this waiting, this expectation that the prophets had set in place, that, that though things are difficult, that though the people lay in suffering and darkness, that a light would shine and that peace would come, all of that waiting, all of that anticipation building up, and then we hear the words, the words of the Gospel of Luke, and so it came to pass. All of it. Everything the prophets had said, everything the people had longed for, everything we had needed, it came to pass. It happened. In a moment of climax, in a stable, the Son of God came into the world. And so we go to Luke. And we read the old story again in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So all of that expectation, all of that anticipation, all of that longing and waiting came to pass that night as Mary birthed her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. The descendant of woman who had come to crush the head of the serpent, the one who would reign of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem. If you look at what had to take place, how God moved to make that a reality, it's, it's quite stunning that, that in Rome, an emperor decided he'd rather tax people a little more. And so in order to do that accurately, he needed a count of how many people there were. And so he sends a decree in his own sovereign rule and reign that causes in the backwoods of the empire, in some impoverished province, a, a newly married couple with a seriously pregnant woman to load up on a donkey and head from Nazareth south to the hill country of Judah. And so that in wielding his power, he is unwittingly making the prophet's story come true. So he relocates this baby to Bethlehem, where he is born, where the prophecy is then fulfilled. See, there were other prophecies that the people looked for as well to when the Messiah would come. Daniel had told them that there would be four Gentile kings that would rule over them, but that in the time of the fourth kingdom, that the one would come, that the promised Messiah would come. 
And so we find ourselves in this moment in history, in the time of that fourth kingdom. You would have expected Bethlehem, at the birth of every child, to have been wondering, is this him? That every pregnant woman would have this hope that their child was the child, that they were the one. And yet, when we look at Bethlehem, what do we find? We find that there was no room. We find that their king came and they did not have space for him. It was crowded. It was Christmas time, everyone's busy. He came, and as John says, he came to his own, but it received him not. I'm sure it wasn't what anyone expected. I'm sure that that no one expected the child to be a recent transplant from Nazareth. I'm sure that no one expected him to be born of one of the poorer families. The scripture tells us that Joseph was just a, a laborer. That he didn't own land. He was a guy that worked each day for a wage. He was one of the poorest of the poor. Not prominent, not wealthy, not of a family that had been considered noble or powerful. And so Jesus wasn't born in a palace with polished marble floors or with midwives there attending Him. He wasn't born with, with fresh, clean towels to treat the mother. Nothing. No anesthesia, no assistance, no help, no family support. Nothing. Not even a floor. But there in a cattle stall on the dirt floor, the Son of God came into the earth and it came in such a way that no one expected it. The answer had arrived for all of our hopes and dreams. As the the old carol says that the hopes and fears of all the years are met at that night with that baby. Who comes? What we find in the story of Christmas is, is as you go through it, that God over time consistently working to redeem people, to draw Him near to them, that in their sin they are so hardened that God goes through the ultimate step of sending His Son, knowing that He would be rejected, knowing that there would be no room for Him, that most people would turn away and esteem Him not, and that in the end He would suffer and die. And that is because of our need, that God has done that to reconcile us to Him, and yet they slept unaware. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, was present, and only a handful of shepherds noticed. You picture the birth of a king in the ancient world and, and you get some kind of image of something where, where there's crowds surrounding waiting to see the new child. And for me, with small children, all I can see is the Lion King. And I can see Mufasa coming to the top of Pride Rock with baby Simba, right? And he holds him up like this and the choir starts, oh, You guys know that one? Yeah? That's what I see with the birth of a king. Pomp, circumstance, tribal choirs singing. 
Jesus is born. There's no Lion King moment. His subjects don't rush to him. He's lucky he got to go to the stable. Because there was no room for him. Trying to answer the question of why, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't come in the way that they had expected. That that they expected a king who would come in a palace. That they expected nobility and wealth and might to be surrounded in his birth. That, That something in the way he was born would have communicated power and prestige and prominence. And nothing about it did. Instead, what we got was humility, meekness, and gentleness. And that the people didn't look for that. That's not what they we're looking for. We're slightly different here. We're not waiting, expecting a great king and military leader to defeat our enemies. We actually find ourselves rather fond of infant baby Jesus. Most of us like infant baby Jesus a lot. Even non-Christians like infant baby Jesus. He's rather non-threatening and cuddly. So everyone likes infant baby Jesus and everyone likes Christmas time because it's heartwarming and it goes well with cocoa. Um, But do we make room for him? Because while he is a baby, he is a king. And see, to make room for this baby, to make room for this king, isn't simply to allocate some place for him in Christmas or some place for him in life. That's not sufficient because he's the king of all creation. And so he demands absolute, complete, and total reign. We don't make Jesus Lord of our lives. He is the God of creation. Now, we respond to it. So the plea tonight is to make room for him. Because while he was meek and mild, he will return as the righteous judge. And many of us will not be prepared. Many of us, just like this town of Bethlehem, will have no room for our king. Many of us will go through life with no room for him. Because to be honest, we would rather be king ourselves. Make no mistake, the story of Christmas is not the story of a gentle baby coming. It's the story of the king of creation moving into the world to save and judge it. To save it by His own death and those who would trust in Him and to judge those who would not turn to Him. It's the story of a king who reigns with all power, authority, and justice. In Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus was coming to the end of His life here, He gives some instruction about His coming again. His followers want to know, when are you going to come? You keep telling us that you're going to to die, but when when are you going to bring the kingdom? When are you going to come as the king that we thought we would see? In chapter 24, verse 42. Jesus says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch 
and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The town of Bethlehem didn't expect their king to come that night and in that way. They were completely and wholly unprepared for it. And because of that, they missed the celebration and rejoicing of his coming. And Jesus promises to come again, to come as a reigning king, to take his bride to himself, to take those who have been forgiven through trust in his death and resurrection, to take them to himself in eternal glory and to judge those who would not receive forgiveness. And he said he will do it again at a time in a way that would not be expected. Let us not be just like Bethlehem that night with no room for our king. If today you would look at your life and say, you know, I've tried to carve out a little bit of space for Jesus to be king, but in everything else, I've kind of reserved the reins. I would tell you that that's insufficient. And that in in submission to him, you will find greater joy than you ever have. That, That when you submit to the reign and rule of this righteous king, this baby born in a manger, the very son of God, that your life will be filled with joy that you hadn't experienced. It will not be easy, but it will be Beautiful. And then if you never have, if, if you say, you know, I, I am my own king, I am the maker of my own destiny, I would say you are. And that destiny is destruction until you turn to God and allow Him to do a work in you. Until you allow Christmas to change your life. Not just your shopping patterns, but everything. We're going to spend some time in worship this morning as we pray. I'm going to ask the uh, gentleman doing the offering to come forward. The challenge this morning is to make room for him. To do that submitting to him, believing that he died from a cross for our sins, that this king loved us so dearly that he gave up his throne in heaven to be with us, to suffer and die and to rise again, and that he will return And then we will be with Him forever. If you trust in that this morning, there's great joy for you in heaven. If you've done that and you find yourself consistently carving out sections of life where He won't be king, where there isn't room for Him, it's to your detriment. It doesn't hurt Him. It doesn't deprive Jesus. He is the king. It deprives you of the joy of submitting to Him and knowing what He has for your life. My prayer for each one of you this Christmas is that wherever you're at, you would come come to a deeper sense of who this Jesus is, who this baby is, and that that would cause you to submit to Him, to be obedient to Him, to worship Him. Let Him reign freely in your hearts and lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word today, for the joy that comes in your son and his birth. Lord, for the beautiful sacrifice that he gave on the cross for our sin. Father, I pray that once again we would be reminded of his kingship and that we would, Lord, that we would make room. That we would place him central in our lives, that we would not be unprepared. 
but that we look to him and him alone for our meaning and significance and purpose. And that as we worship with all of our hearts, we would look to this baby born of a man, in a manger of eternity past, born of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, in the town of Bethlehem, as your prophets foretold. Lord, the same Jesus who will return. And we pray that at his return, you would find us faithful. It's in his name we pray. Amen.